rules or prescribed formalities. It would be something that was spiritual. So that brings us to verse 21, where we left last time. The Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim was the place to worship. The Jews believed it was Jerusalem. The very, in the very near future, the Romans would decimate the land. In 70 AD, when Titus, the Roman general, came in, he decimated the land of Israel, tore down the temple in Jerusalem, crucified more than a million Jews around the city, marched into Samaria and decimated it, killed thousands in Samaria. There was no place in Jerusalem or Samaria that would be able to say, this is the place we worship. He knew that his own body, Jesus knew that his own body was the ultimate place of worship and that it would be resurrected for that purpose. You remember in the garden, after his resurrection, when the women saw him, they, she knelt down and she grabbed him by his feet. She was worshiping. She was made herself prostrate before him. And he said, let me go. I'm not yet ascended to my father. When I'm ascended, then the true worship will be established. It'll be inaugurated through the church of Christ. He knew that his, he knew that it was only, it was only through him that anyone would ever be able to worship the Father truly. The idea of certain places being recognized for worship is still quite prevalent in our time. I mean, even this morning, you may have thought, I'm going to church this morning to worship. Or someone asked you, where do you worship? You'd say, oh, over there at Bethany Bible Church. And we relate worship to places and events and things like singing and giving and, and prayers and preaching. And they are those things. But places of worship is not what Jesus is talking about here. She brings this up. You say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. And it's the same today. The Muslims, for Muslims, it's Mecca. Or bowing toward Mecca. For the Hindu and the Buddhist, it's in their temples. For others, it is shrines and altars erected and made so that people can say they're worshiping. But for the one who worships the one true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the place of worship is in the human spirit. It is in the heart of man. 
At the time Jesus was talking to this woman, the place of worship for the Jews was Jerusalem. You recall in Daniel, when Daniel prayed, what did he do? He opened his window and he knelt toward Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day. This was built into their economy of worship. They went to the temple to worship. They, they went through the rituals. They went through the rites of the temple. The Samaritans rejected all of that because they, ha- they did not hold to the Old Testament, only to the first five books of Moses. And so they believed that Mount Gerizim was the place where that they should worship. It's all focused on places and things. So they were without the greater knowledge of the Psalms and prophets which the Jews had. And so he makes this statement, Jesus makes this statement, that in the eyes of many would have been and would still be a very arrogant statement. One that would probably offend people if we were to say it to someone today. What is his statement? You don't know what you're worshiping. Now that would kind of offend most people. You don't know any, you don't know. It's like us saying you don't know anything. You don't know what you're worshiping. But he was right. They didn't know what they were worshiping. This woman had no idea what she was worshiping. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 2, if you recall, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they thought, this temple that's been, we've been working on for 40 years and had 23 more before it would be finished. You're going to tear it down and, and build it back in three days. But he wasn't talking about that stone temple. He was talking about his body, the temple of his body. That's where salvation resides. That's where true worship is focused upon. Now, there are two aspects. He says, we know what we worship, we Jews, for salvation is from the Jew. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, there are two aspects in which salvation is from the Jews. The first one is that the Jewish people are the ones that received the scriptures first. It wasn't to any Gentile nation. It was to the line of Abraham that the scriptures came. Paul deals with this aspect of it in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 9. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 3. Notice verses 1 and 2. Paul is making his great argument from Romans 1 and Romans 2 about the sinfulness of man and the righteous judgment of God through God's law. And then he gets to chapter 3 after saying that the Jew, a real Jew, is one inwardly, not one outwardly. True Jew is one that has faith of Abraham from his heart. So he comes to chapter 3 and he says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? 
Was there an advantage? Or what value is circumcision? He says, in much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the scriptures. They were given the prophets and the psalms. They had a more full revelation of God's work and will than did the people of Samaria because the people of Samaria rejected that. There are still people today who say that the Old Testament is irrelevant. I've got news for you. It is not irrelevant. It is God's Word given to us just as authoritative as the New Testament And yet in the New Testament, we have the fuller unfolding of the will of God and the purpose of God in salvation through the Messiah, which was only foretold and pictured in the Old Testament. He says in Romans chapter 9, look at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, For I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. See, it was all given to the Jew. Salvation was from the Jews. They had the full record of God's will and God's purpose. The second aspect, not only did they get to receive the Scriptures first, but from the Jew would come the Messiah. He would come from the Jewish line of Abraham through to David and from David through to Christ. He would be the one who would save his people from their sins, according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Romans 9, verse 5. Speaking of the Jew, he says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Christ came from the Jew. This is why Jesus said salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans were worshiping that which they did not even understand. They were imagining that they were worshiping. They had no true knowledge of God because they rejected the scriptures. And anyone who rejects the Scriptures as the true Word of the living God does not know the true living God. For it is the Scriptures that convinces them that Christ is the Savior. How many people today are depending on that which they imagine from their own upbringing or their own tradition? 
They believe things they don't even know anything about. You ever, you ever met people like that? Ask people what they believe and, and they tell you what they believe and you say, why do you believe that? Well, I don't know. It's just it's my idea. Just what I believe. Well, don't you have some kind of, don't you have some kind of authority to go back to? Is this your own uh, subjective reasoning that we're talking about here? And it turns out that's generally what it is. Their own subjective reasoning. They have no objective basis or truth to fall back on. And they just say, well, this is what I believe. Why do you believe that? Oh, I don't know. It's what my daddy believed. It's what my church believes. Isn't it so much better to say, because this is what the Bible says. It's what the Bible teaches. God said... And you point to it objectively. And, I, and I've told people, look here, it's, it's not what I say. It's what God said. It's in black and white. <clears throat> Unless you repent, you'll perish. What does that mean except what it means? There's no subjectivity to it. I had someone tell me one time that I'm too objective. And my answer was, well, I'm just as objective as the word is. If it's objective, then I'm objective. If, if it can be claimed as God's truth and God's word, then I stand on it. And I'll either stand or fall with it. But I'm not going to fall because God is true. And His Word is true. Marvin Vincent writes this. This worship of the unknown is common to vulgar ignorance and to philosophic culture. To the Samaritan woman and to the Athenian philosophers. He's talking about the philosophers of Athens in Acts chapter 17. As the Samaritans received the Pentateuch only, the first five books, they were ignorant of the latter and larger revelation of God as contained especially in the prophetic writings and of the messianic hope as developed among the Jews. The Samaritans believed in a Messiah. It just wasn't the same Messiah that the Jews were looking for. They had only, they had preserved only the abstract notion of God. That's what the world has today. They've got this abstract notion of God as some, as some bearded old man sitting in heaven, uh, uh, watching to see who's good and who's not, and bashing people who do wrong things, and, and, uh, abstract. And you'll hear people say, well, my notion of God is just as good as yours. Well, no, it isn't. It isn't. It's the biblical version of God that we must cling to. Jesus' point here is that God had revealed His truth to the Jewish people. And that truth was found to be in the Old Testament Scriptures. Psalm 147, verse 19, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt with us, dealt thus with any other nation. He gave them to Israel. 
Aren't you glad that He didn't reserve them just for Israel? Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, And and many people shall come, saying, Let us go to, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, to the house of Jacob, to the God of Jacob, that we may He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The truth of God was standing right before this woman and all she could see was some prophet. Well, he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was He was the high priest. He was the king. The salvation he spoke of was not a generic salvation. For salvation is of or from the Jews. This is not a generic salvation that would deliver people from their present circumstances. It was literally, and you don't see it in the English text, it should say the salvation. For the salvation is from the Jews. The definite article is there in the original. Which means that he's talking about the salvation that Christ himself would bring in the sacrifice of himself for sinners. He was speaking of the deliverance of sin from sin and eternal punishment that all that all the sum total of every perfect gift and every perfect blessing comes from it all comes from him it comes from Christ and these gifts and the salvation that he's speaking of accompany the grace of God they come from God's grace That deliverance and blessing came from within the Jewish line all the way to Jesus Christ. Listen to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is to Joseph, in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This woman knew none of that. We often speak of salvation as in the sense of urgency getting the gospel out to people because people are perishing and they're in danger of destruction. We think of the urgency of the gospel message going to people. And certainly we should think that way. But Jesus is emphasizing that salvation is here. It's now. It's standing before you, woman. I'm the salvation. That's why he says the hour is coming and is now here. In other words, get your mind off of your 
ancestors, what your ancestors thought, to get your mind off of your imaginations of what you think God is, and look at the real salvation from the Holy Scriptures, for it is the only one that can save you from your sinful existence. He shifts the emphasis from what used to be to what is now. And that's exactly where it ought to be. I talk to people all the time who go back. They go back. Constantly going back. You talk to them about their life. Talk to them about their sin. Well, I, when I was a child and, and I went to church, you know, my, my, I've heard some say, uh, oh, my dad was a, was a preacher. Well, forget all of that. What about you? You right now, in this moment, before God, could breathe your last breath. And you would stand before Him. What about now? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, forget all this about going to Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. Forget your past. Forget your ancestry. Forget all that you've been taught. Let's think about eternity and your sinful life and your, your standing in judgment before God. What about that? And so that brings us to verse 23. Where Jesus said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. There are three things, three things in this phrase of 23 that I want you to see. Number one, there is a difference between true worshipers and false ones. Now that, that doesn't seem hard to grasp, does it? But it is, it is a true fact that there are in our world people who are worshiping who are false worshipers. There is an implication here that not all those who claim to worship are truly born again. Anybody can claim to worship. Oh, I worship down at the Catholic Church. I worship over at the Lutheran Church. I worship down at the down at the uh, Jehovah's Witness Hall. Oh, I worship at, name any hundreds of places or things that people will say. But not everyone who claims to worship is a true born-again worshiper. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 7. He says it very plainly. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that's pretty blatant, isn't it? What's he saying? He's, he's saying that not everybody who says they're worshiping me is going to enter into heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? Did we not do all these things? And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know you. Who are you? You're not one of mine. You're not my worshiper. 
There are people who claim to worship the true God, but they only do it for a show, or some do it out of a sense of duty. Others do it because it's simply a habit. The word true in the text indicates that which is in accordance with historical fact, that which is genuine or real, that which is valid and trustworthy. It not only has the name and resemblance of true worship, but it also has the nature and spirit that corresponds to God's method of true worship. It obeys His commands of worship. It is not fictitious or counterfeit. It does not pretend to be worshiping when it's really not. There are those who are satisfied with Jesus' word. Many of you have been here for many, many years. I've been here for many years now. And many of you have been here for many years and you have been here mainly because you love the scriptures and you love to hear them preached. That's why you're here. That's why we want you here. We went through this battle within the first two years of of our coming here of how are we going to present worship. And there were people at that time who wanted us to do these uh, grand, uh, what what would you call them? I guess you would call them entertaining uh, productions. I wasn't for that. I was convinced, and I'm still convinced, that God builds His church with His people who love Him and His Word. And I made the statement one time, would you continue to come to Bethany Bible Church? Then it wasn't Bethany Bible, it was a different name. Would you continue to come if all we did was come in here and pray And open the scripture and preach. Would you still want to come? And more the uproar. You're going to take away the music? You're going to take away the puppet shows? Hmm. I said, I just want to do things God's way. Just want to do it God's way. So that it's not counterfeit or pretend. So that we're not just feeding the emotions and entertaining people. It's not what we're here for. There are those who are satisfied with Jesus. He's enough. His word is enough. They don't need the embellishments uh, of other things to make worship meaningful. Because it comes from their hearts to worship. There are true worshipers and there are false worshipers. That's the first thing we see here. Number two, 
These true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That's what true worshipers do. Now, the word worship has to do with reverence and honor shown to the one worshipped. It comes from the Greek word proskuneo. Pros means before. Kuneo means to bow down or prostrate oneself. So you are bowing down or prostrating yourself before someone when you worship. This is more than mere reverence and courtesy. It is a release. Understand now, it is a release of oneself... In adoration and devotion to the one worshipped. There's no holding back. There's no reservation. You're opening yourself up to worship Christ and Him alone with everything that you have. You're not holding anything back. You're not trying to deceive anyone else or yourself in worshiping that way. It's all out in the open before God. It is a release. Sometimes it's sometimes true worship like this happens in the most unlikely places. You remember in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. And there they are in stocks in the jail, probably more like a a dungeon, a cave. And there, after they'd been beaten and they're thrown in jail, what happens? Paul looks over at Barnabas or, or at Silas and says, I just can't stand it anymore. Let's sing. And so they start singing. And everybody around, the other Prisoners are hearing it. The jailers are hearing it. And they're singing. They're singing songs after having been beaten. And they're in jail in stocks, in bonds. They're singing and glorifying God. And God does a miraculous thing. He sends an earthquake that opens their chains. And all the prisoners are freed. And what happened in that in that scene? The jailer who was watching over them, came and bowed before them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's just how simple it is, folks. Repent of your sins. Turn your life over to Christ. You'll be saved. Trust in Him for forgiveness. You'll be saved. There's no great... There's no great uh, formula to be had. There's no great work to do. It's just believe on the Lord Jesus. Give your life to Christ. Follow Him. Fall in love with Him. Serve Him. He is now your master. He's your savior, your forgiver, your God. You can worship Him. Interesting, this word proskuneo, it has the word kuneo in it, which means to bow. 
But it comes from, some, many think it comes from the word kuon, which is the word for dog. And you have this picture. A picture that I have almost every morning. Now, I love my dog. He sleeps on the bed with me. Now, he's only about 17 pounds, so he's not like a big horse sleeping in the bed with me. But I don't think I'd care even if he was. I I wake up every morning, and I reach down, and he's there. And the first thing he does is he starts licking my hand. And he'll lick my hand. And what is he saying? He's saying, I love you. You are my God. I worship, I'm worshiping you. Now get this. One historian puts it into perspective. The word proskuneo literally means to kiss toward someone. You ever, you ever people throw you a kiss? Well, you do that to our grandchildren sometimes. We'll throw them a kiss. Well, it's, we're trying to say we love you. But listen to this. It means to, th- to kiss towards someone or throw a kiss in token of respect or homage, to prostrate oneself in homage, to do reverence to, to adore, and so to worship and show respect. The ancient Oriental, especially in Persia, the mode of salutation between persons of equal rank was to kiss each other on the lips. A custom which is not in our culture. When the difference of rank was slight, they would kiss each other on the cheek. But when one was of much inferior to another, he would fall upon his knees, touch his forehead to the ground, or prostrate himself. And as he was bowing down, he would be throwing kisses to the one whom he was meeting who was much higher in rank than he was. That's... The worship we're talking about. In our hearts, we are bowing before the Lord Jesus. And as we're bowing, we're throwing Him kisses of adoration and love and respect and honor because He is our God. He is the one who suffered in our place. He is the one who gave us eternal life. He is the one who will change our vile bodies into bodies like His own one day. And we worship Him that way. We're given everything. Everything is His. Nothing is mine. I don't own anything. I'm just a steward. He's loaned me things to use. He's the one that owns it. He says they will worship in spirit. And truth. He speaks of it in verse 23. This spirit in verse 23 is not the Holy Spirit. We worship by the Spirit. We'll see that in a moment. But we're not, we're not worshiping in the Spirit as far as, uh, it's our spirit, the human spirit that he's talking about. We could say it's from our heart. It's from our soul that we're worshiping. It is that part of man that makes him God conscious. That means that true worship is 
internal, does not conform to outward ceremony or ritual. It's a matter of the whole heart giving honor to God, being surrendered to Him, and consistent with the word of truth, the Scriptures. This is why we observe the regulative principle of worship here at Bethany. We worship only how God has told us to worship. We don't add anything to it, and we don't take anything away from what He's told us. We just do what He's told us to do. Now, do we see that pattern anywhere else? We see it all through the Old Testament. God gave the law to Moses and he laid out exactly to Moses how he was to build the tabernacle, what it was to look like, what the priests were to do, how the people were to react, how they were to bring their offerings. Everything was lined out. This is how you worship me. So when we come into our New Testament economy, how do we regulate that? We regulate it by what the scriptures tell us the early church did, what the apostles tell us by inspiration of God that we can and cannot or must not do. And just because it doesn't mention something doesn't mean that it's open for us to do. He wants to be worshipped. He outlines how and he commands us to obey it. But in this... We have a very serious problem. And I'm running out of time. The problem is that the spirit of man, that inner invisible part of his makeup, often referred to as his soul, cannot worship God in truth of its own volition. A person cannot just one day decide, I believe I'll worship God and do it truly. It can't can't happen. It's impossible. And that's why the third point is brought up here. Jesus said that true worshipers are those who are sought after and captured by the Heavenly Father. I'm going to stop right there. I know this is just too important for me to try to jam into two more minutes. So I'll pick up right there next week. I have four pages of notes left, so never get to them. Pick up at number three next week. True worshipers are those who are sought for and captured by the Heavenly Father. My desire is that when we come here to to church, and we're commanded to come and worship corporately, but my desire is that when we come and worship corporately, that we leave everything else aside and we focus and give ourselves 100% totally as much as we possibly can to the Lord and to who He is and what He's done and for His glory through the Word of God and by the power of the Spirit of God working in us when we do that we can say we've worshipped that means that you are going to have to consciously 
hear me carefully, you're going to have to consciously keep your attention on Christ and on what's being said and done in relation to Him at all times during the worship service. Because I'm going to tell you what happens. And if I was sitting out where you are, it would happen to me. It doesn't happen to me up here because my, my focus is getting this word to you. But if I were sitting where you are, my mind would be going to, um, boy, I sure hope it's warm this next week. I think I'll get out and maybe and work in the shop tomorrow. Now i got to clean the house some, give the dog a bath. See, I'm no different than you are. You think those things. And when that happens and you find yourself there, you, you, you realize, oh, I'm, this is not what I'm here for. I'm here to worship Christ. I want to keep my mind on Him. Keep my mind on Him. And the more we do that, the more we practice that, the better we get at it. It is very important. Because our eternal existence after this life is going to be one of constant worship. Eternal worship of our Lord. So let's start training for it now. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings of this day. For the wonderful songs and the prayers of your saints. For the giving, for the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord, you would be pleased with it all. We desire to worship you with everything we have. And so I pray that you would grant that to us. Glorify yourself in us. And we thank you for the truth of your word. We can cling to it and depend upon it because it's true. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.